welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, an imaginative storm podcast offering you conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. This show was aired first on WPVM-FM out of Asheville, North Carolina. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more of Walter's music. And every Saturday morning, I host an Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week workshop on Zoom, noon to 1 p.m. Eastern Time. If you'd like to be part of that free workshop, imaginativestorm.com is where you will find the Zoom link. Hope you can join us. Today my guest is Taylor Molly. Taylor is a Brooklyn-based poet who's been working in the spoken word world and on the page for many, many years. I've known Taylor since we met in Asheville in 1994 during the National Poetry Slam Championships, which were held in Asheville. Taylor was a guest on Twice Five Miles Radio six years ago, so in the spirit of his previous visit, I opened the interview by asking Taylor how the last six years had affected him and what he had been doing in the last six years to make the world a more compatible place to live in. And Taylor starts with something very simple and complex all at the same time, his family. My family just got a dog. I've got two kids that are seven and five and my They've, they've been wanting a dog and we told the little one, uh, okay, we'll get a dog when you turn five. And then we told her that when she was two and she's been waiting like, okay, my birthday's at the end of August. I, I turned five and I'm getting a dog for my birthday. Right. And so we, you know, we followed up and we, we got a dog, but I, I've had a couple of dogs in my life and the dog is always looking at you sitting in front of your computer, writing poems and saying, what does that have to do with me? None of this is getting us closer to the park or you wanting this ball that I have in my in my mouth. One of the things that I do, and I'm going to answer your question tangentially and circularly, which I think is one of your favorite methods. I take bags out of trees. My wife, Rachel, is one of those people driven crazy by the sight of a plastic bag waving its middle finger at you from a tree across the street. And we have a huge plate glass window in our living room that looks across the street. So we have a wonderful view of any bags that get caught. And I thought, I'll build something that will snatch bags out of trees. And so I went to Home Improvement and bought a telescoping painter's pole and just put a painter's hook that you put the little rolly pad on and you, I don't need the brush part, but I just used the hook. And that's good enough to unhook plastic bags from trees. Whenever I go out to grab bags, people are like, oh, do you work for the city? Nope. Like, what are you, just some random vigilante who goes around getting plastic bags out of trees? Like, bingo, that is exactly what I am. Could you come get the bag outside of my house? Created Plastic Bag Man on Instagram, and I, I only go to places where I can walk to it with my telescoping pole, which I call the Snatchulator. One thing leads to another. The New York Times does a profile of me. It's set to run on January 7th in the New York Times. We did the interview in December of 2020. And the guy said, listen, this is a good news story. And the editor likes to sort of sit on those until he has space for them. So I can't tell you when it's going to run, but I'll be able to give you a heads up of like a couple of days. He calls me on a, on a Monday and says, hey, it's going to run on Thursday, January 7th. So I'm like, okay, great. And then January 6th happens. And there was a small voice inside me that said, oh, no, now no one's going to pay attention to me and my story. Forget America. I don't care about democracy. I want people to see that I'm a good person <laughs> plucking bags out of trees. I weathered the four years of Trump. What did I do to make the world a better place for everybody else to live? God, I donated. So I did, since I'm a father of young kids, I gave away a lot of money. There's an organization that you you got me or got me into that never doubt that a small group of people can uh, can change the world. CCCD. It's a political organization. What they do is focus on state candidates and they try to, and it's a blue organization, they're, they're, they're progressives. They have organized a large, large group of donors 
and the people donate to the different states they target. And then they work to make sure that the the progressives or the more liberal candidates, the Democrats, get in these state offices. And in fact, 2022 election just passed. They were pretty successful. So I'm glad I played a role in getting you moving in that direction. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, guess That's... who's been guess who's been doing that for 40 years? The other side. The Republicans have been focusing on state races. And that's why you get all of these like county treasurers, county clerk, the state secretary of state. But you could you could give your fortune away to political campaigns in an effort to help the world move incrementally forward, like on a group level. Also, you can give on a much more local level to help like a family. My, we, we, we sponsor a family that arrived from Afghanistan is living in New Jersey. I've never met them, but we send them clothes um, every couple of months. Um, and it's just, it, I'm get, I get so demoralized about the money that I give to political campaigns. I could do so much more with that. It could help individually. I'm a teacher. I'm always going to be a teacher at heart. I put my teaching career on hold in June of 2000 to see if I could make a living as a professional poet and spoken word teacher. And it's largely gone well. The pandemic, of course, threw a huge uh, monkey wrench into those plans. But, you know, I miss teaching every day. I may be able to make a bigger impact in the world of education from outside the classroom. That's fine. Thank you for telling me that, those who have. But I miss the day-to-day -day impact that I had on kids, uh, seeing them grow between September and June, which, of course, means you don't, since you see them every day, between September and June, you don't see them grow. Then they go away for the summer, just July, August, and they're back in September. You, they've only been away for three months, but since you haven't seen them, it looks like they've they grew more under your care than they did over the summer. But since you didn't see them, you know, I miss seeing that difference. This is all by way of saying. So I gave a lot of money away. I started picking bags out of trees in in two thousand eighteen, um, and I've been writing poems and I've been trying to push metaphor dice and and working out a lot <laughs> speaking of the frustration if i really push myself in my working out and i watch what i eat it seems like i have microscopic gains you know in my fitness and my and uh losing weight so it's just um, it's just is that is that age i do think that the older we get uh, and those of you out there listening, however old you are, you probably have measured this yourself. Your body changes. The body grows in the direction of its aging, and we take on different forms as we move along. Fortunately, we're not static. And yes, indeed, uh, your body changes. So the, the weight, that the trim weight that you had when you were young, that I had when you and I met, that's shifted to something else. And and that's okay, because in this country, there's all sorts of questions about how we look, you know, our body issues, this and that. And so the body does change. But what stays eternally young is our curiosity, our imaginations, our drive. And even though sometimes we cover that up with stress, and maybe, maybe if you go out, interview somebody that's that's a stranger, they might say, well, my imagination is long gone. But actually, it's it's a better way to say it would be the imagination is covered up. Which brings me around to, I was thinking about this idea of giving things away, and you were saying you gave a, a lot of money away. But then I was thinking, well, I mentioned to you that this organization existed, and then you took action and moved in that direction. And so that brings up the question of of wealth, and how we define wealth in this country. And often when we say wealth, we go to the Rolex watch and the you know, private jet or whatever it is. But there are many other ways to be wealthy in this country. And one of those ways I think is, is, is connecting with people like you and I are connecting now. You and I were talking about making connections. 
I was very impressed the night that I went to the Bowery Poetry Club and you stood on the stage. Your hair was down to God knows how far your back and you greeted the last teacher, the teacher that helped you achieve your goal of a thousand teachers becoming teachers, actually working as teachers. And I watched you cut your hair and and you donated it to some somebody. Maybe it made it. It's called it... uh, Pantene. Pantene is the shampoo. Pantene Great Lengths. Wigs for kids with cancer. Can we come up with a broader sense of wealth that would allow more people to participate in meaningful ways that would be valuable? Yes, of course we can. I have a line in one of my poems that says, when you grew up with so much more than money, grass stains and two parents who loved you. We're talking about currency and we're talking about exchange. So in wealth is just one of those terms that bogs us down because we are so inundated with the external definitions of it. Sometimes we cease to think of of the other kinds of currencies, the other mediums of exchange, like long conversations, stopping to help somebody do something. A, a teacher called me up from Rabin Gap School, private school, Georgia. Had a, years ago, the school produced a um, series called Firefox. It was all about studying the Appalachian culture. Made the New York Times bestseller list. They, they were written up all over the place because of that work the teacher did, who was an English teacher. So this woman is also an English teacher, teaches uh, seniors. She wanted to know how to do what you and I've done many, many years. Like, how do I organize a poetry event with a, a whole bunch of students who speak like 30 different languages? And then what can I do with it? And so there's currency. Those students bring their currency to the table and then they they spread it out. So when I'm thinking of wealth, I'm thinking of how do we redefine it? How do we how do we value the things that maybe we've overlooked? We being everybody and so many of us, probably everybody, we're born with great vast range, unlimited creativity, unlimited imagination. How do we organize it? How do we notice it? How do we spend it? So that's what I'm curious about when it comes to the question of wealth. You know, uh, Thoreau, I guess, in uh, Walden says uh, something like, could there be any greater miracle than to see the world through another person's eyes? And that reminds me of a, another Arab proverb, if everyone in the world could hang their problems out on the line like laundry you would quickly go and gather yours back in for shame to see that, oh, <laughs> my problems aren't other people's problems. Connection, let's use virtual reality to try to get people to see the world through another person's eyes. And that would make them realize I was blind to my own wealth of my imagination and my peace of mind and my brain chemistry. I have not spent enough time in my life just thinking about my brain chemistry. I don't spend any time being grateful for that. It would be the one thing that I would miss the quickest. My, my dad always used to say, what do you need to survive? Food. What else? Water. It's actually more important than food. What else? Safety and shelter. Right. But what else? What are you forgetting? Oh, air air you need air and it's like if it's that pervasive you don't even you don't even really notice it and i think that's a beautiful illustration of what i'm getting at air without it how long will you last a minute two yeah. certainly won't last five and and yet it's so abundant it's so present in our moment you forget to talk about it and yet Air is the first thing that goes when we speak of the bigger picture of the climate change and whatnot. It's, and so the most valuable thing we have, the thing that we would fight hardest for, air, is the least noticed. Yeah. And I wonder, I, I bet you there are many other things, if we stop for a moment and just do an inventory of what is valuable, what is currency. I mean, air is certainly currency. It's probably a pretty long list. And here we are back to wealth equals cash. You know, that's going to be fairly down on the list when you start to think of it from air being the most valuable currency. 
Do you still work with Marquise Stillwell? I haven't talked to him in a long time. I've had a conversation with him maybe two years ago. Um, He's another one of those guys that gets, you know, I, I hear about a lot of uh, organizations. Well, tell it, let's see, Mark, Marquise, let's, we've brought him up. Frame him just a little bit so people will know who he is. Okay. Uh He's a guy that you and Paul Devlin introduced me to, and he's he's sort of like a life coach for creatives, you know, like, okay, what's your niche? What's your market? He's the guy who told me, if you can't measure something, then you don't know what it is. And I thought, oh, of course that's true in business, you know, but I'm in education where people are obsessed with measuring things because they want to be able to claim that they know what it is. He gave me some great ideas and and some that didn't pan out, but he's he's a a life coach for creative people. Wouldn't you say that? I would say like that. Yeah. Vision, you know, what's your vision board? For every time that he's like, okay, I want you to make a vision board. He also has more more practical advice as well. We would meet once a week, I think, for an hour. Talk about a connector. He's great. When we are able to measure things like that. And that was another thing that Marquise would talk about measuring. I want to measure it. And, and, you know, we mathematically do have a great capacity to measure, even if we don't do very well in math in school, I still know how far it is to my door. I still know how warm the room is. I still know, uh, you know, how many hours I have until I have to meet somebody like you and I getting together this morning. So, and yet it's hard to put a measure on the coach noticing that little opening. But once it's noticed, it can be measured by the World Cup win. So that's why I think Marquise is an interesting, interesting guy to talk about. Let's move into some of the other things that you're doing, like the podcast. I'm the class agent for my private school, the collegiate school for boys. We graduated in class of 1983, which means that in May of 2023, I'm going to be celebrating my 40th reunion from high school. At a private school, there's always somebody whose job it is to say, hey, it's time to get make a donation to the school. So that's normally my job. And last year, I decided if you make a gift to the school, I'll write a limerick about you and I'll send it to all of our classmates. A stupid little funny jokey limerick. My classmates loved it. And consequently, I got 55% of the class to make donations, which turns out to be the second highest of any of the classes, except for the guy in the year of 1938. So in 1938, he was 18. He graduated from school. What that means he was born in, you know, 1920. So he's 102. He's the only guy left in his class. He sends $5 into to the Collegiate School for Boys and 1938 gets 100% class participation. My year was next with 54%. For this year, I'm not writing a limerick for everybody who gives. I've just started a podcast called 83 Dutchman. It's available on Apple Podcasts. And I'm interviewing a different member of the class, mostly the members of the class. Sometimes it was a, a a girl from another class, the Nightingale School, and she dated a bunch of guys in my class. And she's like, yep, this one was the best kisser. And then I get her, her first love on the next podcast. He's like, this has been such a humbling experience. I find out that John Aaron Krantz is a better kisser than me. One of the people who listens to the podcast religiously is a young guy who's a doorman in my building. He's, he's the concierge. He sits behind the desk during the day, you know, from seven to three. And I'll go down there to walk the dog. And he's like, love the episode yesterday. Oh, I can't believe that guy dated your ex-girlfriend after you broke up. It's really fun. I get to do what you do. It's just in, interview a lot of people. And they all come from a very privileged slice of life. But they all have different stories. Not everybody was the children of bankers. And you know what I find is that 95% of the people in my class felt like outsiders in some way. I always say that we have two reasons not to tell the world our secrets, but and they're both wrong. Either we think everybody had this experience growing up, didn't they? And no, they didn't. Your experience is unique to you. So talk about that. Or else they think I'm the only person who has ever felt this. And that's probably also wrong. Look at the gay kids in the South. It's it's tough to come out 
Imagine a trans kid in Georgia, a gay kid in Florida. It's so comforting, it must be, to realize you're not the only one who has wrestled with these things. And I'm discovering that, talking to these. Look, I'm 57. I'll be 58 in March. These So these guys are all my age, and we all knew each other. Some of us from first grade, the, the interview that dropped yesterday with my old friend Chip Brainerd, I've known him since I was three or four. So we knew, knew each other from Park Avenue Christian Day School. Everybody feels like an outsider who didn't belong in some way. I was talking yesterday to probably the most famous member of our class, although he didn't graduate with us. Adam Gettle is the grandson of Richard Rogers, of Rogers and Hammerstein, and he is a Tony Award-winning Broadway composer, a light in the piazza. He won Best Original Score. And unlike his grandfather, who was just the composer, Adam is the lyricist as well. Before he died, Stephen Sondheim said, Adam Gettle is going to be the savior of musical theater. No pressure there. And I was talking to him yesterday and he said, oh, well, you know, I felt like such an outsider at collegiate because I was always singing at the Metropolitan Opera. And I had to say, nobody considered you an outsider for that. You can be so successful. And I was like, hey, listen, when I do, when it's time for your interview, Adam, you know, I'm going to ask you to fill in this question. Adam Gettle has been what? And he said, oh, how about Adam Gettle has been Adam Gettle is a has-been. Like, wait, what? You won a Tony Award and you think you're a has-been? Okay, fine. How about an Adam Gettle is a never-quite-was? Like, oh, God, how can you be so successful and still so unhappy? It's, it's about currency. This goes back to currencies. Absolutely. And I've listened to a number of your shows. I haven't listened to all of them, but I I agree with the fellow that works in your building. I think this is really interesting to listen to these people, all of whom had privilege, as you said, multiple, multiple opportunities. As I've listened to them, I hear them talk about the things they struggle with, genuine struggles. And I have a couple of friends their fathers were giants in the in the entertainment business. Absolute, like you don't get any further up than, okay. than the fathers. Okay, the sons, both of whom one I know much better than I do the other. Although I've gotten to know the the second one fairly well, they sing the same song. Both of the fellows are probably as talented as their gigantic, award winning fathers. And yet they somehow have been muffled down. They, they struggle with their currency and they will often, once you get them to referencing the fathers, they don't necessarily do it because it's such a weird reference. But once they start to reference, you can hear the struggle that they have because the fathers were just, abs- they, they were gods and they never got a comeuppance. They died gods and everybody around them were gods but the sons were out a bit from the center of the universe and as i was listening to some of the fellows on your call i thought you know i'm hearing some of that i don't know if that rings true with your experience talking to these guys but the but the gigantic fathers the, the, and casting the long shadows then the sons having to to rise to it it's not always true sometimes it's the opposite I don't know that you could, look, I think I I talk a lot, I think a lot about what it takes to be a really good dad. And I had a fantastic dad. You weren't being the best dad you could be if your shadow, if your son grows up in such a, a shadow. It's all about blossoming and blooming, you know, and, and I, I say this in my podcast, 83 Dutchman, when I prepare for an interview, I think, when did I see this friend of mine, what was the earliest moment that I saw him blossom or bloom in, into the person he's he's become now? And I talk about that. I witnessed that. And so those two guys, I, I feel for them. One of my third interviews was with a guy named Nick Davis. His father w- was a, a documentary filmmaker, as he is now himself. 
His father won the Academy Award in 1975 for a documentary he made about Vietnam called Hearts and Minds. Nick moves back to New York, and in July of 1975, his mother gets hit by a taxi cab and dies. And he shows up at my school six weeks later, and I and I don't I didn't know that his mother had just died six weeks before he came as a new kid at the at the school. I'm still friends with my fourth grade teacher, who was his fourth grade teacher as well. And I texted her and said, uh, she must be in her late 70s now. And I said, did you know that Nick Davis's mother had gotten killed six weeks before school started? And she said, yeah, we, we all knew. But a couple of the guys who had episodes after Nick's were like, I wish I had known that his mother died, partly because I could have offered support, but partly because my father died two years later. You know, and is it too late to start a dead parent support group? And the answer is no. When I think of the shadows that that people cast and it it brings up the question of authority and not the authority of the father, but the internal authority. We are the authors of our story. When you start to think about how many people live in the shadows, or at least they think they do, but the shadow the big father cast or whomever cast it, maybe it's an institution that cast it, it may not be as thick and hard as people might think it is. I'm not discounting the hardcore abuse and then some of the nasty stuff that happens to people, the other kinds of, of shadowing. Do you agree that nobody sh can call themselves a great dad if their kids don't believe that they are the authors of their own story? My father was a World War II veteran. He came back from the war. He stole a fiddle off a mantle in Germany. He loved to play Appalachian music, and he did very well with it. He also worked for the power company, but he also brought the Battle of the Bulge back with him with some booze to, to boot. And he was a very violent man when he wanted to punish my brother and me for the things that he thought we did wrong. And yet, on the other side, he taught me how to play music. And so I have the contrast between the two. So my thinking has been of late. Okay, I understand. He was young in his 30s. He struggled. He had no parental training, and he had all of the war to deal with. So how do I view him? Did he give me my internal authority? Sure. Did he do a great job? Nah, not really, but he did give me some, but I took that and I've developed it as best I can. Probably did an okay job with it. I feel fairly strong. I wonder if it's even worth measuring. Is my father good or bad? Because, you know, they were just men spreading it to parents, mothers and fathers. Young people struggling to try to do something meaningful within a world that was, was hard for them, maybe because they didn't understand how to parent. So when you factor that in, it takes a little bit of a burden off, I think, and it, then it also does add value to each of us, everybody listening. Okay, I, I can have my own internal authority. My mother said to me, the only success that I ever want you to have is to be yourself. And if you do that, then you're fine. And that seems kind of casual, but it's actually rather significant when you think about being oneself and when you embrace that self, not the narcissistic embrace, but the loving embrace of knowing who you are then somehow the shadow diminishes, the sun comes up. My parents tried to tell me that they were not perfect parents all the time. They said, we, look, look, we're not perfect parents. And that only served to make me think, who, but who would say that's exactly what a perfect parent would say? Right. But can perfection even be achieved? Of course not. But you can strive. And I think that has great value. As we enter the final segment here, let me, I have one of the red die um, in metaphor dice. It says my, my father, can you read that? Right. Frame uh, metaphor dice for okay. people before you toss out right. the Before roll I start first. tossing out the dice. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so if, you, if, if the last time I came on here was 2016, I had probably just taught 
at the Avenues School. I was the mm -hmm. visiting uh, teacher there and had come up with this idea of metaphor dice, uh, three dice, the concept, the adjective, and the object basically makes a metaphor. You think of Mary Oliver's uh, wonderful metaphor in Wild Geese, you, you know, you do not have to be good. You do not have to drag yourself on your hands and knees through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. That's the advice that your mother gave you, right? You let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. All right, that's a, a, an amazing metaphor. That's almost everybody's favorite part of that. And she could have written that using metaphor dice. Your body, that's the subject. Soft is the adjective. Animal is the object. You know, the body is a soft animal, except she chose to switch it around. The soft animal of your body. To create a metaphor live in class by combining a concept, an adjective, and an object, or an idea, an adjective, and a thing, or a big noun and a small noun with an adjective in the middle, is something that lots of teachers have done. To explain the difference between a concrete noun and an abstract noun, and then have a kid choose you know, one from each column and then write a poem you know, can be, uh, can be a challenge for 45 minutes. So I came up with the idea of let, like, let's just put a bunch of dice. Let's put a word on acrylic dice. Our, the original dice were paper and they, that was great. And kids got to choose their own words, but I wanted to get the students to the point where they could roll the dice quicker. Um, so I came up with these dice, red, white, and blue, and I'm holding three in my hand right now. And I'm going to roll, okay? One of the options on this red die is my father, but it might land on love, memory, happiness, your mother, home. All right, here we go. The roll of the dice. What is it going to tell me? It's like tarot card. I Ching. Happiness is a burning zoo. Who has not walk through the cages of the burning zoo of happiness. And if, you know, if I were going to write on that this morning, I would talk about, you know, the idea of uh, captivity and uh, all, all of the different elements and energies that are uh, contained uh, to, and burning, burning, a burning zoo of happiness. My mind went to, if the zoo was burning down and all the cages were flying open, talk about happiness. Oh, right. Escape. We're free. The burning zoo of happiness. Now, if you it's, were, what's if, that quote? Um, you know, since my house burned down, I have a much better view of the moon. Exactly. <laughs> All right, let me get my father. Uh, oh, your mother is a desperate thunderstorm. I'm going to stick this on my father. There it is. I got my father. What is my father? Now I'm going to roll the blue. My father is a quiz. My father is a type of quiz. But now here comes the adjective, and the adjective can change everything. My father is a backhanded quiz. The backhanded quiz. How many times have you tried and failed to pass the backhanded quiz of your father? There's an element of violence there for you. Does that resonate with you? Well, I mean, it took almost about, if you can measure half a second, I was off and running because my father was a backhanded quiz. And I did later, he used to shoot eight millimeter Kodak movies, home movies, and my brother digitalized them. And I have like five, six, seven hours of us as little, little children running around in the, in the countryside. But I realized he would say, title it starring Jimmy and David produced by JC. And then he would put the end. And so he, he was attempting to make movies, never did it go very far with it but most people just shot and then let it let it go like that but he actually set scenes up now this so guy what, was what kind of titling he was just he drew it on a on he a drew it on a, on a piece of paper and took a picture of it and then somehow shot the the shot the shot it part he shot it as part of the eight millimeter movie and then i guess he spliced it together i don't know but it's there or so, else or else he just put <clears throat> film in the camera and then said, all right, listen, when I, when when this gets developed, I want it to be a little movie of my kids. So yeah. I'll just I'll start with the title and I'll 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 film Jimmy and David and then I'll film this thing at the end. And I and then without any editing, he just gets a slice of life. And there you go. I don't know how he did it. All I know is when I saw it, I thought this is a guy who wanted to be more than he, he was driven to be more 
and do more than he was doing, so he was making the best of what he had. What's what was the metaphor again? My father is a backhanded quiz. My father's a backhanded quiz. The reason why that works so well is because every father is a backhanded quiz, not only to the children, but to himself. Every mother is a backhanded quiz. It might be fair to say that we all, if pressed, would say, yeah, I've had some backhanded quizzes in my life. How do you figure those out? Maybe you yeah. never do. Beautiful. But the, I, I think I've just given you what you're going to write about when our call is done, you know, is, and the, the whole idea of, uh, you know, whether a quiz is true or false or multiple choice. I was a teacher and they say you're, they say that when giving a multiple choice test, you should not succumb to the temptation of making the answer to every question be B. You shouldn't be playing around with that. Don't mess with what a kid thinks. And the one time I did it, I did a five question multiple choice and the answer to everyone was B. A kid handed in his quiz and I said, did you notice something? He's like, what? He's like, I got them all right. And I said, did you notice that the answer was B? He's like, no, I didn't notice. I just, I just circled the right answer. I didn't see what it was. I just circled the right. So, I mean, he really knew his stuff. Mm -hmm. He was not going to be thrown by the fact that, wait, this can't be B also. So before we go, Taylor, now that we have metaphor dice on the table and we've had a little bit of fun with our imaginative leaps, tell people how they can find metaphor dice if they wanted to use it in their teaching world or just as part of their writing prompts. I would love that. I would love that. Of course, I have a website called metaphordice.com. And we've got these wonderful cardboard pop out. You can, you can make paper dice and write your own words, and then they're reversible. Those are fun. And I should mention this, we're coming out, Button Poetry, a fabulous poetry uh, publisher, is publishing an anthology of poems, all written with metaphor dice. Um, we're in the final stages of the of the editing of that. It's going to be called Poetry by Chance, and it comes out in July of 2023. Metaphor Dice on Instagram to find out more. Well, Taylor Molly, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to spend it with with us, with me. It's always a pleasure to connect with you as the years go by, and it's it's a delight. So thank you, brother. My pleasure. I'll see you later. And that, my friends, was Taylor Molly. In addition to MetaphorDice.com, you can also find Taylor at TaylorMolly.com, M-A-L-I. And you can also find Taylor's podcast, 83 Dutchman, on any of the platforms. It's about the fellows he graduated with in 1983 from the Collegiate School for Boys in New York. When I was listening to some of the interviews, Taylor does on 83 Dutchman with his friends from school, I started thinking about the different ways we are able to be educated. I suspect the definition of education varies from person to person. You may have a view of education based on your experience in school, just like I have a view of education based on my experience in school and also from the point of view of lifelong learning. You can educate yourself until the day you die if you so desire. I googled the definition of education just to see if I actually understood it and it's very simple. First definition is the process of receiving or giving systematic instruction, especially at a school or university. And the second definition is an enlightening experience. When I think of education, I usually think of the first definition how one goes through the university system or through the school system. And I also think about how each school system, each university system offers its own methodology. You may report that your school experience was terrific and you were able to find all kinds of excitement in learning as you went through school, or maybe on the other side, you might report that you had a tough time in school and that your instructional experiences were haphazard and not all that well presented. The second definition, an enlightening experience, 
strongly suggest that your education never has to end the day you get your diploma or the day you walk through the school doors for the last time. It says clearly that anytime you have an enlightening experience, there's an opportunity for an education, for some kind of learning, for some kind of awareness. I've talked to a lot of people who have told me they are very, very happy with their institutional learning experience. And one of the reasons they're happy with it is because the teachers were excellent and the teachers were able to not only give them the systematic learning experiences they needed in the world, there was enlightenment that came along with it too and that's because the teachers were good and the teachers were excited and the teachers were joyous and the teachers were intrigued and curious about the surprises that come when you enjoy your educational experiences and thus the enlightenment that comes as well. On the other hand, if you have a less desirable educational experience, you simply might want to drop out of school and get on with your life. When Taylor talks about his experiences at his school, the Collegiate School for Boys in New York, you can hear the excitement in his voice because he was able to have all of the enlightenment opportunities that an education can, can give somebody. And when you experience those kind of opportunities, there's great pleasure involved in it. You, you wake up in the morning excited about what's going to happen. There's mystery, um, an, an imaginative verb, uh, uh, curiosity. And on the flip side of that, if you happen to be in an educational system that's more industrial, if you will, that's focused on tests, that drives you very hard to get the exact right grade so you can pass whatever test is in front of you. And there are a lot of situations like that uh, around the world. And when you are in an environment like that, it's, it's less exciting, less imaginative, less curious. And for students who are in environments like that, it's easy to understand why they wouldn't want to go to school because they know when they wake up that there's going to be very little curiosity, very little imaginative play, likely not that much enlightenment. They leave the house thinking that their current day will be just like the others. And this is a systematic problem more than it is a teaching problem. I imagine the teachers who are working in these kind of more industrial situations get up with the same sort of sensibilities the students do. They leave the house knowing they're going to have to conform to a system that's not built around imagination, creativity, enlightenment, curiosity, and excitement, and most especially play. I mentioned a moment ago that in situations like that, it's no surprise that somebody would want to drop out. And in fact, many students do drop out of school and often teachers get burned out and then they leave teaching or drop out of teaching. The term dropout is a negative term in American culture and probably in other cultures as well around the world. So often the term dropout is used as a way of saying that person is not very successful. It's dismissive. That person is a school dropout or that person dropped out of the job market, the dropout, somebody that can't quite live up to the standards. But there may be another way to look at it. Taylor talked about all of the good experiences he had at his school in New York. If you are in an environment that's luscious and active and generous and curious, as I've said, you hardly think of dropping out, especially when you're doing things you want to do. So when somebody wants to drop out of something, it may be because they are not stimulated. It may be because their instincts are telling them they need to go somewhere else. The need to drop out may in fact be a desire to find a place to drop into. Of course, if you happen to be 16 years old and you are completely bored with school and you decide to drop out because you legally can do so, you get the brunt of the blame. You become the high school dropout. And that's a label that's rather hard to carry in this culture. And yet when you talk to people who have dropped out of school, high school, college, whatever, they often will say the reason why they dropped out 
wasn't because they hated education. It was because they really disliked the way the educational system was designed to approach their learning styles. They will often say, I just couldn't stand the confinement. I really didn't like to conform to the time frames. I was bored. I kept looking out the window, and every time I looked out the window, somebody would be punitive toward me. My teacher would reprimand me. So eventually, I just couldn't stand it anymore, and I just went on my merry way, and I gave up school, and now I'm out here on my own trying to create something that's meaningful for me. Of course, giving up school doesn't necessarily mean one gives up an education, although in this culture, if one drops out of school, at 16, the opportunities to self-educate do become more narrow because the realities of life set in, as we all know. That said, dropping out of school doesn't mean that you can't homeschool yourself, doesn't mean that you can't educate yourself. It just means that sometimes it's a little more challenging because you have to be dramatically self-motivated to do that. This brings me around to the idea of dropout. I wonder if the people who are dropping out of education, dropping out of school at whatever age they drop out, are they dropping out or are they looking for a place to drop into? They're leaving a place that doesn't allow them to drop in. We call it dropping out. But if you flip that idea and said, these people who are dropping out of school are actually motivated by reasons maybe they don't understand to find a place where they can go, where they can drop in, where they can get the stimulation that they need. So when you think about it like that, the notion of the school dropout becomes a bit more nuanced. The school dropout looking for a place to drop in a place to have an education that's sympathetic to the learning style that the dropout has starts to make a little bit more sense. Unfortunately, most of the time when people drop out of school, they don't often find a place they can drop into. Instead, they usually find other avenues that maybe are just as rough-edged as their school experience. I do know people who have dropped out of school and they've gone on to educate themselves. They study for the rest of their lives and they're very happy about it. So you don't actually have to conform to the systematic school structures that exist to actually get a good education. You can do it on your own. That said, if you happen to find yourself in a lively learning environment that also is an institution that's sympathetic to your learning styles, then you likely will stay there. You will stay dropped in. So regardless of whether you have a good learning environment in an institution like Taylor School in New York, or if you decide you're going to go it on your own solo. Either way, when your curiosity is stirred up, your imagination is active, you will likely come across educational experiences that will also contain enlightenment. And those educational experiences don't necessarily have to be some formal proposition that you enter into, although it can be a workshop environment, or it can be a class you sign up for, or it can be a study that you embark on. Maybe you decide to learn how to play the guitar, or learn to speak a, another language, or at least become familiar with another language. So you educate yourself. You pick up the guitar. You, you touch one string. You strum it. You hear the harp-like music coming from the strings you strum, and there's a little bit of a glimmer, a little bit of enlightenment, if you will, bringing the light onto the subject. I'm thinking of something that happened to me just yesterday, some enlightenment that happened. I was traveling with my friend Allegra Houston. We were going to work on some projects with uh, Mark Trupetti, who lives here in Taos, and we're all here in Taos at the moment. So Allegra and I are driving down on a winter's day in New Mexico, no leaves on the trees. 
bit of snow in the air, but not too much. Easy driving. Weather was not too cold. It was winter-like, cold-ish, if you will, just around the freezing mark. And we turned left onto the driveway where our friend Mark lives. And driving down the driveway, I noticed what I thought was sculpted elk standing in the field, five of them, very close together. Well, actually, there was no sculpting going on. Five full-grown elk were standing in the middle of the field as we drove down the driveway. And as we drove down, the delight, the enlightenment, the education was there. The, the sculptures moved. They were live. They were elk in the field. Now, how does that tie into education? Well, it occurred to me that the reason those five elk were in that area where my friend lived, and it was a, an open area, lots of fields. The house was sitting in, in an area where you could see the trees and the bushes and everything around. It occurred to me the elk were there because it was hunting season, and maybe the elk knew they were safe in that environment. So they had decided for whatever reasons to just place themselves in the field and around my friend's house as a way of protecting themselves. So I w had a little bit of an enlightenment moment. I thought, well, you know, those, those animals are really smart. Now, all of my self-education came to bear in that moment. Suddenly, first of all, I thought, ah, oh, sculpted, animals in the field. And then I realized, no, they're alive. So the biology came into play and the animals seemed to be really easy with our car moving down the road. So there was a rhythm to the, to the whole experience. W was that enlightenment? Maybe a small little bit of enlightenment. So we were all dropping in to the moment. I would like to think there was some synchronicity there as well, some openness around me having the enlightenment of seeing the elk. I don't know, that may be a bit of a stretch, but all of this is to say, you can educate yourself for the rest of your life. And if you did happen to drop out of something, maybe reconsider, maybe think you were dropping in rather than dropping out. You were looking for something that would give you meaning, something that would give you some delight, some, some curiosity, some enlightenment. So education can be simple, it can be easy, it can also be very rigorous and demanding as well. If it's approached with the right spirit, it will always be satisfying and have a lot of meaning. And on that note, it's time to say goodbye for now. Thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, an imaginative storm podcast offering you fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. This show was aired first on WPVM-FM out of Asheville, North Carolina. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more of Walter's music. If you would like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com, Nave spelled N-A-V-E, and join me any Saturday morning, my creative collaborator Allegra Houston and I host an imaginative storm writing prompt of the week workshop, gathering, salon, conversation. It's always free. It's on Zoom. You can find the link at imaginativestorm.com and it starts at noon Eastern time and ends an hour later at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern time. So join us, imaginativestorm.com. So once again, thanks ever so much for tuning in. Thank you, Taylor Molly, for spending time with us. And I appreciate your ears and your attention. Come back again sometime soon. Till then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.